Welcome to Conversations That Matter, a long-form interview show featuring thought leaders who shape our world. The production of this program is made possible thanks to the support of Audlin Brown, BD Development, and listeners like you. The Canadian economy is on track to be the worst performing economy out of 38 advanced countries over the next 40 years with the lowest growth in real GDP per capita, says David Williams, the Vice President of Policy at the Business Council of British Columbia. He goes on to say, young Canadians entering the workforce today are facing 40 years of stagnant average real incomes, according to OECD projections. That is a dire warning to policymakers in Canada, one that demands a need to address the underlying causes. If they don't, Williams says, there will be a decline in real incomes relative to other advanced OECD countries. I invited David Williams to join me for a conversation that matters about the bleak forecast of stagnation young Canadians may face over the course of their careers. David, welcome. Thanks very much, Stuart. Great to be here. It's kind of an ominous uh, viewpoint, projection at the moment. It is, yeah. What brought you to this point where you're going, we got a real problem there? I mean, I was very surprised when I went through the OECD report. It was published in the the latter part of 2021, and uh, we wrote a report on that in December of 2021 that just sort of went through the numbers. And when you crunch them, you know, Canada comes out as dead last, as you point out, for 2020 to 2030, and then also 2030 to 2060. So as you say, 40 years of stagnant growth in, in real GDP per person. Uh, and for those who don't know what GDP is, it's the total expenditure or the total income or the total production in an economy in a year. And essentially it's all the income of businesses and households for one year. Uh, and on a per capita basis, that's what we care about because that's living standards. That's what we get to take to the grocery store and, uh, and use to feed our families. Uh, and that's what's stagnant for the next 40 years. Is it stagnant or are we already starting to slide back? Because when I was looking at a couple of the figures, it looks like we've uh, seen real incomes drop by a couple of thousand dollars for the average person over the last two, two and a half years. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, we're on track for these forecasts is, is the bottom line. Uh, what the OECD, OECD did is they looked at how Canada has performed from 2008 to 2020, and we grew at about 0.8% per annum. This decade, that's going to drop to 0.7, and then for the three decades after 2030, it will go back to, to 0.8%. Before 2020, that would put us towards the back of the pack. For the next four decades, that puts us dead last meaning all other countries are going past us. With regards to the, the near-term forecast, you're absolutely right. We took a look at the, uh, the BC budget, which includes some forecasts for real GDP per capita from 2022 to 2027. And also the federal budget has forecasts for GDP. So we took some, made some assumptions about population growth. If you assume population growth of about 1.8% per annum, it's gonna dip in the next couple of years, but out to 2027, real GDP per capita is essentially flat for about 10 years. So it, it, we, we really are standing, staring down the barrel of a lost decade uh, in growth for average real incomes. Why? You know, in my introduction, 
you know, we talked about what are the underlying causes of this. Yeah. What are those underlying causes? How did we get in this position? The principal cause is the lack of productivity growth. Now, you know, there's two ways to generate income in an economy. You've got the number of workers you have and the number of hours you can work, and then you've got how productive you are with that time. Uh, and that's a function of how much capital, equipment that you've got, are you using the latest technology, the latest business practices, uh, are you doing R&D, and are you exporting and operating at scale? And what the data is saying is that all other countries are going to eclipse us in all of those things, capital per worker, innovation and R&D per worker, skill accumulation and operating at scale. All these other countries are going past us because we are rated the, it's projected to be the, the seventh uh, weakest uh, productivity growth performance over 2020 to 2030, and then dead last in productivity growth over 2020, uh, 2030 to 2060. So is that, is that a reflection on Canadian workers, or is it a reflection of government policy that has gotten in the way of us being as productive as we can? I don't think it's the, the, the issue. it's an issue with workers or working hours at all. That's not about productivity. That's about labor inputs. That's about sort of effort. There's no issue with effort. We're good for that. <laughs> the issue is around our productivity. Uh, and as you say, government policies that uh, you know put, throw sand in the gears of the economy, uh, the ability to operate a business, discourage businesses from operating at scale, discourage business investment. Uh, these are all the things that are really holding us back. Got to get you to hang on for a second while we take a quick commercial break. We'll be right back. The production of Conversations That Matter is made possible thanks to the support of Audlem Brown, BD Development, and listeners like you. Canada, for the most part, has had a standard of living that we're, uh, you know, above our you know, place in sort of economic activity just based on output by, by workers. Yeah. We've relied heavily on exports. Are we falling behind in those areas in which we're able to say, we're, we can export this, we can export that, and therefore there's great income that's coming in? Is it, is it in this uh, exporting of resources uh, diminishing uh, that is putting us in, in this line of fire? Yeah, I think that's part of it. The two things, there's two issues that I would identify is that one is the level of business investment per worker is essentially been, uh, it's flat. Uh, it's barely keeping up with depreciation. So businesses have equipment, they maintain that equipment, but they don't buy anything new. And so if you look at the capital stock per worker, um, the amount of equipment, offices, facilities, technology that, that a worker has to use when they go to work it's about the same in real terms as it was in the 70s, except in Alberta. Uh, it really hasn't grown in decades. Uh, that's surprising. I mean, you know, as an economist of you know, 25 plus years, uh, you expect uh, countries over time to increase the amount of capital they have per worker. They become more efficient, more productive, and incomes grow as a consequence. And in Canada, the capital stock on a per worker basis is actually shrinking which I didn't think was possible, but there we are. The other aspect you mentioned was exports, and I think that's very, very important. You know, if, if you're a, a, an insular, domestic-orientated uh, country, that, that's not good. It's like, you know, being able to compete in the beer leagues, uh, you know, for your local uh, you know, sports club versus being able to compete at the Olympics. And we've been retreating 
from international trade as a country and as a province for about 20 years. Why? What, what happened? We've got a very difficult operating environment uh, for, our I think, our, our businesses, the ability to operate at scale. Let, let's talk about the tax environment. Uh, we have a business tax system, or capital, uh, sorry, a tax system in general, that was last comprehensively reviewed federally uh, in the 1960s by the, the, the Royal Commission, uh, the Carter Royal Commission. Uh, well, the, the country's changed mm -hmm. uh, since the 1960s. The economy's changed, but the tax system remains the same. That's not, that's not good. The provincial tax system hasn't been reviewed for quite a while, even though the Finance Committee of the Legislature has several times unanimously recommended there be a comprehensive review. So we're going to look at how the system works. And just to give some examples of that, you know, we, we want and we support progressive taxation based on the capacity to pay. But we also have to recognise that income taxes, personal taxes, are taxes on work and they're taxes on skills. So if you tax something, you get less of it. Um, you know, you think of somebody who's, you know, a, a policeman or a, a nurse, uh, a police officer, uh, who gets the opportunity and off, you know, would you like to work overtime? And that's good for the, good for the hospital, good for the, the, uh, the system, uh, the justice system. We want you to work overtime, we're prepared to pay you time and a half. But the tax system turns around and says, well, hang on, that's going to kick you into a higher tax bracket. So the person thinks, well, you know, that's time away from my family. Yes, I'll make some more income uh, in a market wage sense, but I won't get to keep much, as much of it uh, in after-tax terms, so I won't bother. So, you know, the, the health system doesn't get the extra hours that they would like out of, out of a nurse. Um, the, the nurse doesn't get the extra income, although they do get the time at home. Uh, and the province doesn't get the revenue <laughs> because the work never gets done. And that's just an example of how the, you know, we have the fourth highest uh, top personal tax rate uh, in, of any North American jurisdiction. Does that make sense? Well, let's also talk about how that impacts businesses as well because we see an awful lot of piling on of direct taxes or indirect taxes through, uh, I guess, um, employee benefit packages that are mandated by governments. This adds a tremendous cost. Well, that's right. I mean, if a business grows their net income above $500,000, the tax system punishes you, the, the company by sextupling, meaning increased by six times the tax rate. Uh, so if you were a business, would you really want to grow your income, your net profit to $501,000? No, you're going to, if you can, you're going to split your div the divisions of your business into separate smaller companies and keep them small. Don't operate at scale where it's more efficient to operate. And of course, you need to operate at scale to export into international markets, uh, which obviously we can't do. So all of these things are sort of just getting in our, getting in our own way. I mean, employer health tax, you know, again, the first 500,000 of payroll is exempt. After 500,000, you know, you, you, you take on the, the employer health tax as well. It, there's a dis disincentive there clearly built into the system to say, whatever you do, don't grow beyond $500,000. And then that contributes to what ultimately becomes stagnation in the economy because we're not growing. That's right. That's right. And yet we're attracting people to come to Canada. Um, from around the world, and we want to attract some of the best and brightest. Yeah. Does this also pose some problems when companies go, well, I want to recruit you because you're uh, exceptional what you do, uh, and then that person looks at the tax regime and the environment here and goes, 
I think I can get a better, better deal in Seattle. That's right. We have to remember that we're right next door to the United States. You know, we are heavily subsidizing as, as parents and taxpayers our uh, post-secondary sector. We want our kids to go through and get a good education. But then at the same time, as you say, the best and brightest look at it and say, hey, I can earn a higher market wage and pay a lower tax rate uh, to work south of the border. And then that's what they do. This is our second break. We'll be back in a moment. The production of Conversations That Matter is made possible thanks to the support of Audlin Brown, BD Development, and listeners like you. When we take a look at investment in infrastructure right now in Canada, uh, we're, not, we're not doing much. Um, you take a look at in the energy sector, uh, other than the completion of the Trans Mountain Pipeline, it's my understanding there's no investment lined up um, like no projects that are in the process yeah. of going through approval. Nobody's even lining up to make applications. Yeah. What's happened to Canada as a place for other countries to invest? Because if we can't get that additional investment into the country, how do we hope to be able to like burst through to the next level? Yeah, I mean, if you, yeah, that's right. As you look at the infrastructure in BC, for example, it's mostly uh, and in most provinces, in fact, except Alberta. Alberta, it's sort of public-private. There's a bit of a, it's balanced there. The private sector is definitely in the game, uh, but the private sector is not uh, not participating really in infrastructure in most other provinces of Canada. It's, it's as you say, it's it's too difficult. Um, why? It, it's hard to make the case, you know, as a as a business person, to deploy capital to Canada when you don't know how long it's going to take to get approval. To, to, to build out uh, what you're trying to do. Uh, and in fact, tomorrow there's a report coming out from uh, a group of business councils, uh, and Denise Mullen from, uh, from our BCBC, shop has yeah. been involved heavily uh, on that report. It's coming out tomorrow. The Business Council of Alberta uh, are leading the way on that. And it talks about the, the future of the Canada is unbuilt, and what can we do to unblock these um, you know, Byzantine uh, regulatory uh, blockages that we have. I mean, you know, it's a, it's sort of a bit like Lord of the Rings, you know, the third Lord of the Rings movie you know, when, when Frodo's trying to go through mm. Shelob's lair, you know, and you just don't know what's around the corner. It's, it's cavernous. It's, it, it just never seems to end. Uh, and that's sort of the reputation that we, we have in international markets at the moment. I was reading with a certain amount of dismay that Irving Oil in New Brunswick is like actually speaking out publicly at the moment, uh, a, a company that has been notoriously quiet, saying, well, we may leave New Brunswick. Yeah. Um, and if they do, I'm not even sure how the eastern section of Canada gets its you know fuel and oil needs met because yeah. nobody else is going to come in and replace that. Do you, when you start to see those kinds of things, think that they're idle threats or are they very real uh, problems that the country is facing. I, I do. It, it, I mean, we are taking. We've been taking the foundations of the economy largely for granted. Um, there's been a big concern about. I'll just digress for a second. We, you know, there's concern about income inequality, uh, and rightly so. It's a very important issue. But we've got to be careful not to import U.S. narratives here. Income inequality in Canada has been declining since the early 2000s. Uh, if you look at the bottom end of the income distribution, poverty rates, poverty rates have been going down uh, since the mid-2000s. Which is at, great. Which is yeah. great. And you yeah. look at the top end of the distribution, the, the, um, 
the share of, of income going to the top, you know, one or five percent of earners uh, peaked in the early 2000s. So the, the big increase in mm. inequality was in the 80s and 90s. For the last 20 years, income inequality in Canada has been going down. So the, what I'm trying to say is that we don't necessarily have a problem in sharing prosperity in the country. We have a, prob a problem in generating prosperity. That's where we're, we're, we're missing. And that's coming back to the OECD's forecast. Mm. That's what's bearing out in the data. Last year, I did an interview with one of the authors of a book that was put out by the Trilateral Commission called A New Spirit of Capitalism. And it was basically saying there are big problems in the world and the capitalistic markets, entrepreneurialism and, and, and whatnot, can help to address these challenges. But they can only do it if they're working in harmony with governments and government policies that they know are stable. Has Canada sent a, a signal saying that we have an uneven or an even an unpredictable legislative environment or regulatory environment, so it's too risky to invest? And I'm worried that that's the case. I think that it, there's a very strong risk of that perception uh, that we're seen as capricious, uh, highly political in how we approach things. It's not a uh, a, a set of rules that one can understand and follow and say, oh, okay, that project will take me three years to get to get permitted. Uh, so yeah, it is a, it's a di very difficult environment, I think, for international uh, companies wanting to invest in Canada. How do we change this? Is, is, do we need to have more voices like this? Do we need a greater awareness from policymakers that the rules and regulations that they're imposing, well, on the surface sound um, laudatory, yeah. um, when you don't understand what the reaction or the unintended consequences might be, uh, then you got a problem. Yeah. I mean, the first thing I'd say is don't ignore the problem, which is kind of where we are at the moment. Uh, you know, just, we're just ignoring it. We're just ignoring it. I mean, yeah. I'll give I'll, to just to put that up up in the window. Uh, you know, the Trudeau government picked up on on this issue of being last in the OECD, and so in the 2022 federal budget, if you look at pages uh, 20. Uh, 25 and 26, chart 28, yeah. you'll see per capita GDP from 2020 to 2060 and Canada dead last. In so that. they're fully aware of they're it. They're fully aware of it. They put it in the 2022 budget and they say this is absolutely central to Canadian, Canadian living standards. Uh, and they were so uh, uh, alarmed by the situation that they took bold and decisive action by scrubbing any mention of the issue at all from the 2023 budget this year. That was the bold and decisive that action, was the just to take it out. Take it out. I mean, obviously they didn't know what to do about it, but uh, they took it out, entirely took it out. Uh, that won't do. As I say, the budget forecasts themselves show GDP per capita stagnating to 2027, federally and provincially. So you can't ignore it. Um, you know, I would put things like productivity, export performance, uh, uh, real incomes, av real average incomes. I would put those things in ministers' mandate letters with with a, you know metrics mm -hmm. that you could track. Uh, you know there are other countries that have uh, like Australia, for example, where where I'm from. Uh, they have a productivity commission that's existed for decades, and the purpose of it is to get an agenda of work from the government to, uh, to hold public inquiries. It's staffed by experts in microeconomic reform, and its job is to simply find. The, where is the, where are the, where's the sand in the gears of the economy? And it might be arcane things like airport landing fees, which, you know, it sounds pretty dull. Mm -hmm. But of course, when you 
when you fly, you know, look at the bottom of your ticket and there'll be, you know, taxes and fees and, you know, all these airport landing fees that are all passed on to the consumer. Mm-hmm. Um, get those out of the way so people can travel more, which is good for the economy. Uh, and that's the kind of institutional solution I think we need. The United Kingdom has a productivity institute, uh, but th- there are a lot of institutional solutions we could, we could do, as well as the, putting these issues in ministers' mandate letters. Third and final break. We'll be right back. The production of Conversations That Matter is made possible thanks to the support of Audlem Brown, BD Development, and listeners like you. You said something interesting about that landing fee gets passed on to the passenger. Yeah. What I note now uh, that the carbon tax went from being revenue neutral when it was first introduced, particularly here in British Columbia, which was brilliant. Um, You're going to achieve the outcome that you want, but you're not turning it into a revenue generator for the province. Well, now uh, carbon tax policies have become part of government revenue. And I note that Irving Oil was saying, well, you're not giving us the option to... uh, add this to the price of our products, you're telling us that we have to con- consume that tax. That yeah. we're not even allowed to pass it on. Yeah. So when we start to see this piling on, is that the kind of sand in the gears that you're talking about? Yeah, exactly. I mean, the carbon tax is supposed to be, uh, and something we support, by the way, the, the most efficient way, the cheapest way of reducing the carbon emissions. Uh, and, and that's a good thing for the planet. We want to do that. Uh, the problem is, as you say, we abandon the revenue neutrality of it, even though we're the first jurisdiction to bring it in. Um, we abandon the revenue neutrality and we've expanded the size of governments on the back of it, which it was never supposed to do. And we're still doing all the regulatory interventions uh, across the rest of the economy, uh, rather than relying on the carbon tax itself. So it scares me. We put those pieces together one little bit at a time, this building on that and so on. How do we unravel it? First of all, I guess you have to have the will to unravel it, yeah. not bury the report. But how do you then start to go, okay, we're going to like pull that sand out of the gears and allow it to flow again? Well, I'm optimistic that the policy environment is going to change in the next few years. And the reason I say that is because I think this is being felt across the economy. I think people are feeling this very, very deeply and, and intuitively. You don't have to be an economist to know that people are doing it tough right now when they go to fill up their car with petrol, while they're doing the school run, uh, you know, when they're looking at their mortgage account statement, uh, when they're taking stock of the taxes that they're paying, trying to buy groceries and seeing how far their income will stretch, uh, trying to get your kid into an actual school rather than a, you know, a portable classroom, even in a brand new school, uh, whether it's trying to get the medical treatment that you're trying to get in time, The bottom line is our economy is simply not as efficient and as productive as it should be, and it is not generating gains in real average incomes for people. I glommed onto the word that you said that you're still optimistic, which I think is a great way to wrap this up because I want to be optimistic as well. Thanks for your time today. Thank you for listening, and please visit conversationsthatmatter.ca and become a subscriber. As well, thank you to Audlin Brown and BD Development for their support.